Welcome to Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. I, as always, am Misha, and with me today is Joe. Hey, how's it going, Misha? Uh, it's going freaking awesome, Joe. Um, today we're going to bring... language. What? That was freaking... Oh, okay. sorry. Uh, today we're bringing you an episode from the Society for Neuroscience Conference in D.C., and Joe will be talking to two very interesting neuroscientists. What are you going to be talking about? Yeah, so I uh, met up with uh, two of my old friends from Colombia, uh, Christine Constantinople and Matt Lovett Barron, um, both like two very um, amazing, impressive scientists who've done incredible work in their postdocs and are, are, are moving on to, to great stuff in their careers. Um, first up, we're going to hear from uh, Christine. Um, she is a postdoc uh, with Carlos Brody at Princeton University, and she studies uh, basically economic decision-making in rats. And uh, we're going to hear a lot about um, the types of behaviors that rats can do and how we're able to, to, to sort of figure out their, their risk-reward ratios that they use to make decisions. Um, so without further ado, here's Christine. Okay, and we are back live on the floor at SFN 2017. Uh, I'm Joe, and I'm here with a very special guest, an old friend of mine from uh, my Columbia days, Christine Constantinople, PhD. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So, Christine, uh, you are a postdoc with Carlos Brody at Princeton. Um, we're going to talk about your next exciting job opportunity in a little bit, but I just wanted to... Uh, catch up with you about some of the really cool stuff that you guys are doing probing uh, basically economic decision making uh, in the brain and like dissecting out exactly how we're able to make appropriate decisions about value in the world and things like that. It's sort of like a higher level cognitive type of behavior mm -hmm. that uh, differs a lot from the type of stuff we usually talk about on the show, which is normally like purely visual processing or sensory processing or, or motor activity. But this is like a really high level set of uh, complex behaviors that you're finding interesting ways to characterize. So sure. what exactly are the types of uh, behaviors that you think are, are particularly interesting to study? Sure. So I guess I've become interested in behavioral economics, which um, is basically developed a set of tools to describe human choice behavior. So there are concepts like a utility function, which captures how you know rewards of different amounts kind of map onto our, how we value them. Um, and also things like probability distortion, that humans tend to overweight uh, low probabilities, for instance. We think that very unlikely outcomes are often more likely than they are. Uh, and those phenomena are, you know, useful in describing things like aggregate stock pricing and, you know, various features of human choice behavior. But I would argue fundamentally that those are cognitive operations that the brain must do, right? We, our brains have to evaluate the subjective value of different outcomes and the probability of those outcomes happening. And so if, you know, you know I'm interested in developing an animal model that's going to let me probe the neural basis of these effectively cognitive phenomena. Right. So the first place my mind jumps to, based on what you just described, is that the process that's underlying these different types of value systems that, that humans have is exactly what's being exploited by casinos. Like sure. it, it basically you could use data in casinos yeah. to essentially figure out the value functions that humans have or like yeah. what types of risks they're willing to take or not take. Insurance companies, you know, the premiums they offer you knowingly exploit the shapes of these functions. That's that's incredible. Yeah. So by studying, you know, different animal models and understanding how the brain, you know, makes these different uh, internal value systems basically occur in a human or, or any type of animal, 
gives you more insights into like understanding how we could sort of maybe rise above some of like the biases that we have? Sure. Or? I think it has implications not just for the public health, for, you know, things like pathological gambling, um, but also just for our financial solvency from the level of household finances to the broader markets. That is incredible to me because normally when we talk to people about like the applicability of their research in the real world, it's things like, well, you know, if we understand plasticity, we can understand, you know, how babies learn to talk or, you know, if we I understand mean, that's how... that's super the, important. Of course. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, downplaying all this important research, but like normally hear about like, how do we cure Alzheimer's? How do we cure like Parkinson's disease? But in this case, it's like, how do we like, you know have a more stable stock portfolio or something sure. like that. It's incredible. To me. It, it's, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because it intersects with, you know, some different fields, right? Right. Um, so we're using the tools that we have in neuroscience. We're using, you know, the, the, the tools and the model systems of behavioral neuroscience, but we're speaking to theories that have been developed in economics. Um, there's also kind of finance has a different language for talking about some of these same phenomena. So it's, it's an interesting, it's interesting kind of cross section. Exactly. Yeah. That's really cool. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you actually do this. How do you, how do you study behavioral decision-making in, uh, in, in animals? Uh, what are the tools that are available for you for figuring out how the brain makes like complex cognitive decisions? Sure. So, um, in the Birdie Lab, we use rats as our behavioral model, uh, and I think that they offer a couple of key behavioral advantages, um, namely that they're small and they're cheap. And so we can train literally hundreds of them a day. Um, wow. And they're actually pretty smart. So, you know, I guess it depends on what your standard is. <laughs> so, you know, whereas you were, you're talking about like how humans, you know, would make financial decisions or, or, or decisions about money, like what is sort of the equivalent for a rat? Like how do you sort of figure out the internal value of, of different outcomes sure. to, a, to a rat. So there's many ways that you can do it. The way that we do it is um, they work for water rewards. Um, in other labs, they can work for sucrose rewards. But, you know, what's nice about something like a water reward is we can very carefully kind of titrate it in an analog way, right? So we can vary it across a wide range smoothly and really explore a variety of conditions. Um, so, you know, the task that I'm training rats to do currently is that they choose between ex explicitly cued probabilistic gambles on each trial. Um, and so they're just choosing between a lottery uh, or a safe option. And we can vary the amount of safe reward that they get and, you know, how valuable or how much water they might get if they take the gamble. So is, is it sort of like assessing how risk averse these rats are like like what are the, the types of risks they're willing to take sure exactly see. so how uh, how then do you figure out how what what role the brain plays or different types of cells or circuits in the brain contribute to this sure so once we have the behavior and we can we get a really kind of detailed rich description of their behavioral choices and across a wide range of, of um let lotteries or gambles, then we can kind of capitalize on the tools that exist in rodents to monitor and manipulate neural circuits. So for instance, I've expressed this inhibitory opsin, halorodopsin, in two brain areas so far, um, a part of the brain called orbitofrontal cortex that uh, one of the reasons that it's interesting in these kind of value-based tasks is because in humans who have um, lesions either due to tumor resection or stroke, they tend to exhibit kind of dysfunctional risk preferences. Um, and they often seem to be risk-seeking. So we can look at a homologous region in the rat and we can express these kind of uh, inhibitory or excitatory opsins and perturb in a temporally precise way the dynamics there and see what effects it has on the rat's choices. 
Um, and so, you know, some preliminary data that I have is that it seems like when we perturb this orbitofrontal region, we bias the rats towards making riskier choices. So, I mean, you know, if you, if you really try to break down all the parts that go into uh, a rat making a decision about, you know, you, the, the value, the expected value of the outcome of a, a behavioral trial or something like that, there's it seems like there's a lot of different stages of processing that go on. There's, there's sort of raw sensory input sure. that is used to sort of construct some representation of what's happening. And then they have to use that to make a judgment about future outcomes. So, I mean, it seems like in this sort of scenario, you could break this down into a lot of different working parts, like different parts of different circuits would be contributing different types of information. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, is that part of the advantage of the rat is that you could ultimately go in and sort of dissect out exactly how the circuit builds up a representation of expected value, for instance? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a big question and, you know, it probably involves sort of the whole brain. a career level question. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I would argue that probably most decisions, but certainly value-based decisions, are not going to involve, you know, one or two brain regions, but they're really going to be distributed um, both in terms of different aspects of the behavior, but I, I imagine that also many of those are shared across many regions of the brain. And so um, it's a big question, but I think it's also really rich and there's a lot to do. Yeah. And speaking of, um, you know, expanding on really big questions and embarking on like, you know, new trajectories and research, you have a very exciting uh, life occurrence. Well, you've had many exciting life occurrences <laughs> recently that we don't have to get into, but um, you uh, recently accepted a, a faculty position at NYU. Yeah. Um, so you'll be starting up the Constantinople Lab. Do you have a name for your lab yet? Does it have no. like the fancy... Should it be Istanbul? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Not Constantinople. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So you'll be starting up. I, I mean, you're in a cohort of you know people we went to grad school now that are are at this like pivotal career stage where you're you're, you're sort of you've made it, you're sort of like starting, embarking on your own laboratory uh, career. So we had David Schneider and Annegret Faulkner That's on the great. show last year at SFN, and uh, they both are also starting new faculty mm -hmm. positions. So it's really cool to see people at this juncture of their career going from postdoc to faculty member. So what is that, I mean, what is that process like? I mean, um, I mean, are you starting to think about setting up the lab and like, you know, what exactly the equipment that you have to buy? Like, sure. are, you, are you recruiting grad students? Well, this was the first already, SFN or? that I went to the vendors, like seriously, okay, cool. <laughs> to, Interesting. to kind of, you know, get a sense of how much there are different things going to cost, um, you know, different manufacturers, what am I looking for, that type of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's also kind of uh, maybe unique because I have about a year buffer. Yeah, um, which is probably kind of nice. It's really nice, yeah, partly yeah. because I'd like to get this paper out. I had funding for a year. My lab space needs to be renovated, so it's kind of a confluence of factors. Um, so I'm not starting until next fall, and that gives me a little bit of space to kind of think about all of the things that um, I want to implement and, you know, the projects that we want to pursue. But, yeah, I mean, um, once I get there, I'll probably be looking for uh, talented and excited grad students um, and also, you know, postdocs. Cool. Well, that's going to be a great opportunity for yeah. whatever grad student decides to, to join your lab because it sounds like, you know, the ability to, to understand really high-level cognitive level effects in the brain is uh, as sort of at a circuit level is, is, is that's that's the future of neuroscience. I feel like so it's like it's really cutting edge stuff that I think uh, can make a really big impact. Um, and I think NYU has a pretty uh, interesting history of behavioral economic. Like there are people there that have been, have sort of been pioneers of behavioral. Absolutely. I mean, all of the work that I've done has been heavily inspired by really pioneers that have been doing um, 
work like Paul Glimscher and others. So, you know, another draw, it's really kind of a dream for me to have the opportunity to go there, partly because I was an undergrad there. And so it's the department yeah. where I fell in love with neuroscience and research to begin with. So it's like going home. Yeah, it's yeah. like really cool. Um, but also there's so much expertise in these domains that I'm really interested in. And so I think it's also exciting to be surrounded by colleagues that are going to, uh, I think, strengthen my research program and challenge my ideas in really useful ways. Cool. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and talking thank to me so about your research me. and uh, good luck with setting up the new lab. It's, it's so exciting. Thanks. Cool. They should make a board game called Reward, you know, like they've got Risk, you know what I mean? Or they can make Risk Reward board game. I think all board games Everybody are intrinsically about reward because if you win, it's a reward. Well, then they should call it that. Risk just sounds risky. That's why I never played it. Does it have rewards? They should, they should call all games <laughs> Reward. <laughs> Because that's the goal. Uh, thank you so much to Christine for, uh, for, for, for sitting down and talking to us about her research. And best of luck to her at her new gig at NYU. Um, next up, we're going to talk to Matt lovett Barron um, about a lot of the cool research he's got going on at Stanford. Um, so let's talk to Matt. Okay, we are back. Uh, this is Joe Schumacher on the floor of SFN 2017, sitting down with another uh, brilliant neuroscientist, ready to talk about some fancy, fancy research. Uh, we have Matt Lovett Barron, PhD. He's a Helen Hay Whitney uh, postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University uh, in the lab of Carl Dyseroth. Uh, and he studies uh, circuits in the brain that are involved in neuromodulation and understanding how these uh, contribute to interesting behaviors. And we'll talk about that. But the first thing I want to get to is that the number one thing that popped out on your uh, CV when I was looking at this afternoon is Forbes magazine, 30 under 30 for science. By my count, there are only 29 other people that have that, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, accolade. So um, how, how does that decision come out? That's amazing. Uh, I actually am not entirely sure. I just started getting emails one day asking me to fill things out. <laughs> I thought it would lead to, I thought I'd get to go to cool parties and meet athletes and stuff, but that didn't happen. It's just a, a, a network of 20, uh, 30 people across the country that just ra are randomly grouped into a list on... on <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Well, it's not random because it's based on a tremendous uh, uh, a research history that you've developed over I think random might career. be involved, too. <laughs> there's, a certain, there's a certain roll of the dice, but there's also, you know, the high probability that it's based on your tremendous research. Um, so... Um, I want to talk to you about uh, especially this, this current story that is hot off the press, actually not even on the press yet. I think it's just uh, in pre-publication right yeah, now. Yeah, it's just online. Uh, in Cell, um, looking at a uh, you know, wide distributed uh, network of neuromodulatory cells in larval zebrafish and what this tells us about sort of the ancestral uh, state of like in the brain, how, how neuromodulation uh, changes arousal alertness and, and that sort of thing. So. So what is it about zebrafish um, that is helpful as a research tool that allows you to understand things about how the whole brain works? Yeah, zebrafish are a great model system. And, and one of the key reasons is the fact that they're small, so they're numerically simple, um, but they're also transparent. And so this allows the use of all these great modern tools for optically observing and controlling brain activity. And, I think this is particularly helpful in the case of neuromodulation, which is inherently a phenomenon that occurs across the brain, uh, because a lot of these neuromodulatory neurons, they project everywhere, and so they affect the brain in all places. And so sometimes you may think of these internal states as being 
the collective effect of their activity across the brain at once. And so this is really challenging to try to observe in larger animals. And this is really what attracted me to the zebrafish for this particular problem. So before we, we, we dive uh, too much deeper, let's, let's sort of define for the listener exactly what we mean by neuromodulatory system. So there's a bunch of different types of neurotransmitters that can be released that modify the, the function of, of, of neurons across the brain. A lot of these happen, the release of these neurotransmitters happens on, sort of, as you said, a global scale. So, you know, a certain event happens and then there's a massive release of a certain neurotransmitter. What are some of like the common ones? Acetylcholine? Yeah, acetylcholine, dopamine, serotonin, a lot of the monoamines. And there's a very large family of neuropeptides and hormones that are released. There's a long list and it's not a complete one. I don't think we know all the substances that are released because often neurons will co-release, say, a classical neurotransmitter and a neuropeptide, let's say. Right, and so a lot of these are also associated with like neurological and psychiatric disorders as well. Yeah, right? very frequently the, um, you know, a lot of uh, psychiatric disorders are treated with drugs that influence the serotonin system, such as SSRIs, common for anxiety and depression, as well as dopamine system, norepinephrine system as well. I mean, a lot of those were discovered by happenstance, and so they weren't logically designed, but um, they certainly have a, an effect on uh, an animal or a person's brain state. Sure. So again, sort of returning to, to how you, you, you investigate the activity of these, these neuromodulatory neural populations in the brain. So you have a larval zebrafish. It's, it's small. It's clear. You can, <laughs> you can do you know, imaging on the, on the whole brain, essentially record, you know, hundreds of neurons. How many brain, How many neurons are in the brain? Yeah, so they have about 100,000, it seems. Lot. It's a lot. It's about in the same order as an adult fly. Okay. And so uh, the adult zebrafish is much larger, has many more. Uh, but the larval zebrafish, usually in the state of about a week old, a week to two weeks old, has about 100,000. And so, you, you know, part of what you're studying is how neuromodulatory activity is occurring in the brain. So how do you manipulate neural, uh, you know, neuromodulatory activity in, in the zebrafish? Are there, is there a certain behavior that you're, you're, yeah. you're observing? Or? So the particular behavior I was interested in is uh, alertness. And you know, there's many forms of arousal, such as this really long-term form of arousal when we're awake versus when we're asleep. But I was interested in the more fast fluctuations in arousal that happen when we're awake. And this is often called alertness or sometimes in human vigilance. And, you know, in us, we notice this as something as zoning out versus paying attention in a lecture. And alertness can often be thought of as this base internal state that contributes to a lot more complicated states. Like, for instance, you must be alert in order to be able to pay attention to things or in order to engage in more complex internal states such as food seeking or seeking um, mates or for instance exploratory behavior locomotion things like that so if you're like playing roger federer in tennis and you're about to return a serve you kind of have to be in a certain state of alertness in order to like be structuring your attention what to do and pl planning is that that's sort of right. like the, the level of yeah of that's and that's actually a great metaphor i mean what i was essentially looking at in the zebrafish was uh, reaction times. And this has been studied as a correlate of alertness and arousal in humans and other animals for a long time. It's really intuitive if you're more alert, you tend to have faster reaction times to stimuli. And if you're less alert, you have slower reaction times. So if you're less alert, you're gonna miss that fast serve right. uh, from your opponent. Um, so what are, they, what are the reaction times in response to? Like how do you, how do you get a Zebrafish, what is the zebrafish responding yeah, to? Yeah, so we have the zebrafish, in order to be able to image their brain, we have them fixed in place. They're in a, a goo, agaros, 
And with the tail, uh, is allowed to freely move. And we can show them with a projector visual stimuli. And I show them a looming stimuli. So this is a dot that starts really small and grows large. And all kinds of animals from bugs to monkeys will escape to that because it looks like something is coming right at you. Right, it's sort of like a predator avoidance kind of That's right, and so I I noticed that there was quite a bit of variability in the reaction times of zebrafish, even to uh, the same stimulus over and over. And uh, I did some experiments to see if this, like in humans, reflects the alertness state. I did things like measuring their heart rate during the behavior, Um, and sort of what you'd expect. The heart rate is fastest before fast reaction times, slowest before slower reaction times. And I could manipulate things. If I give them caffeine, it makes them faster. If I sleep deprive them, it makes them slower. And so it was suggested that their variability in reaction times was not due to some sort of sensory processing variability, but rather uh, their internal state of arousal. And so we use that as a pretty simple behavior to try and access this internal state. So do you ever, if you look from zebrafish to zebrafish, are there some just sort of like lazy zebrafish and some like super hypervigilant zebrafish where the, the sort of baseline level of alertness that they can achieve is different from individual to individual? Or Yeah, absolutely. There was certainly variability in that case. Um, but within each zebrafish, I saw quite a range of reaction times. Um, but there's also a variability in how many stimuli they respond to, for instance. I see. Yeah, I mean, because the other, you know, really fascinating aspect of, uh, of this, this, this project that you've been working on is that after you are imaging the activity of all these neurons, you're able to, like, take the whole brain of the zebrafish and, uh, you know, process it to figure out what are the cell types that each of the cells you're looking at are, right? So how did, how did you do that? That's right. So I, I was interested in looking at these neuromodulatory cells. And, and typically you have the option of, in a lot of animal species, of having a transgenic line that allows you to specifically observe, say, just the dopamine neurons or just the serotonin neurons. But when I started this project, we didn't have access to a lot of these lines in zebrafish. And so I decided to come up with an alternative approach where we would image all the cells in the brain and then take that same fish and process it for immunohistochemistry, which is only compatible with fixed tissue, but allows you to visualize protein expression in many different cells at once. And then I would image the brain again, and we figured out a way to register the fixed brain, which has all this cell type related information due to the immunohistochemical signals to the live brain, which has the activity information. And that's how we were able to look at all these different neuromodulatory cells and do it relatively quickly without having to construct a million transgenic lines, which right. is, is kind of out of my wheelhouse too. Cool. So I was, yeah. <laughs> uh, it ended up being a really, a really great method. And I think it's probably applicable to other animals as well. Yeah. I mean, I think anybody who's doing, you know, large scale imaging of a field of view and wants to know more about how the relationship between the functional properties of cells and, you know, the genetic, uh, you know, constitutive properties of these cells uh, are, are related would benefit from this type of approach. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and particularly because it didn't require making transgenics, I actually, I hope it allows for people to look at the activity of cell types in model organisms that maybe aren't traditional for neuroscience, because all you really need to do is be able to express a genetically encoded calcium indicator in the neurons, and then you can process the tissue afterwards without having to, say, the, <laughs> embark on the laborious task of making transgenic species for all kinds of different animals. Right. So did you learn anything interesting about how different neuromodulatory systems coordinate their activity? Does everybody kind of just respond all the time? Or are there any sort of, uh, you know, interesting, you know, sort of quirks to how, like, neuromodulatory activity is coordinated in the brain? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, people had known for a long time that the norepinephrine system uh, released by the locus ceruleus is involved in alertness. And we saw that that was the case in the zebrafish. But we also found a series of other cell types that we didn't expect, including some peptidergic cells that release neuropeptide Y, some that release a strange peptide called CART, which stands for cocaine wow. and amphetamine-related transcript. Wow. Um, and neurons that release dopamine, serotonin, uh, some other ones that release acetylcholine. We saw cells that released somatostatin in the hypothalamus that had uh, opposite effects, that in that their activity was highest before slow reaction times. And one great thing about the zebrafish is, like mammals, they're vertebrates, so a lot of these cell types are conserved. And the zebrafish is, you know, it's kind of like a brainstem with eyes on it. Right. You know, there's no neocortex, there's no hippocampus, but a lot of those deep brain structures are, are conserved. And so it was, uh, the zebrafish turned out to be a very useful species to examine. Um, these cell types in. Yeah, so like like the title of your of your manuscript says, it's sort of like a, an ancestral state of maybe a, you know a, sort of a prototype of a neuromodulatory system for a wide variety of vertebrates that maybe are separated by hundreds of millions of years of evolution or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And and you know we use that that term to describe what we found because we also validated it in mice. So we found all these interesting cell types. And not all of them are conserved in higher mammals, but many of them are. And so we decided to directly look at these in mice, um, not by imaging the whole brain, obviously, but using a method called fiber photometry, where you're able to record the bulk signal of genetically specified neurons um, as mice were also behaving in a reaction time task. And we found that the activity of the cells was remarkably similar between the two species, which was uh, a pleasant surprise. I mean, we knew the cell types were conserved based on the gene expression, the neurotransmitter they release, and uh, their location in the brain, but finding out that their activity was so conserved was, was exciting to see. That's awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us today. We're looking oh, forward to, uh, to the next stage of your career, and um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll hear from you again, I'm sure. Great. Thanks, well, Jeff. Take care. All right. Thank you to Matt lovett Barron for sitting down and talking to us about his research, all this uh, the whole high throughput system for figuring out these different neuromodulatory systems is is incredible and, uh, and best of luck to him with the rest of his career. Um, that's it for us in our, our SFN episodes. Um, thanks for tuning in and uh, be sure to uh, to like us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you can follow us at at Neuropodcast. Misha, what is your name? Uh, it's Misha. <laughs> Uh, your Twitter thing, I already know this. I was just trying to throw some banter in there. It's uh, uh-huh. at Salad Zombie. You can figure out um, what his political leanings are if you're so inclined. <laughs> and um, uh, that's it for us today. Uh, until next time, take care. Bye. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast. 